afternoon, and welcome to this edition of Always Ready, the program dedicated to encouraging the church to discern truth from lie, right from wrong, and right from mostly right, and ultimately how to look at the world around us through the lens of Scripture. There are a lot of truth claims being made every single day, but only one truth remains, and that is found in God's Holy Word. My name is David Lohman, my friends call me Delo, and I am your host and fellow pilgrim in Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for joining me today for Always Ready. I want you to be informed, and I want you to be entertained, but most importantly, I want you to be always ready. Today is Monday, April 7th, 2014, and welcome to edition two, volume 33 of Always Ready. And boy, we have a great show ahead. No, let me, let me rephrase that. We have a great week. Uh, no, let me rephrase that one more time. We have a great two weeks. We are going to carry a theme throughout the next two weeks. That's right. We are going to be dealing with, this will not be boring, trust me, church history. Church history and how it impacts today. I have lined up, this has actually spent, um, taken me several months to actually do this. I have lined up eight of the most impressive men in the, in, in the world today when it comes to knowledge of church history and the impact of church history on today's church. Your life right now being impacted from events and men that lived 1,800 years ago. Today, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Michael Haken of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and we're going to be taking a look at the early church and the early church fathers up through about the 7th or 8th century. And then on tomorrow's program, we're going to be talking to Dr. Daniel Skalberg of Multnomah Biblical Seminary, and we're going to be looking at the Middle Ages and those people like Wycliffe and Tyndale that led up to the Reformation. And then on Wednesday, we're looking to be speaking with Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis of Concordia University in California. He is an expert on the life and the impact of Martin Luther. And then finally on Thursday, I'll be talking to Dr. David Hall on the life of John Calvin. So in this next week, we're going to be going from the life of John the Apostle to John Calvin. And then next week, we're going to be continuing the discussion in a sense. We're going to be dealing with the impact of the early church and the Reformation on today's church. My guests lined up for that week include Dr. Michael Horton, Dr. Stephen J. Lawson, Dr. John Barber, and Dr. Joel Beek. Um, for those familiar with those gentlemen, you know that you are in for a treat. They are probably the very best alive today to deal with the issues that we're going to be dealing with. So that's right. We have two weeks of real education taking place on Always Ready. So as a, as a result, we've come up with a new theme song for the next two weeks. That is right. Welcome to Always Ready University. Over the next two weeks, we'll be dealing with church history, walking from the time of John the Apostle all the way up to John Calvin and how it impacts you today, right here on Always Ready. And today we are going to get right to it with my guest, Dr. Michael Haken from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Dr. Haken, how are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? Great. Thank you for joining me. Uh, you come so highly My recommended. When, when Dr. Carl Truman says something, I usually pay attention to it. And uh, he, he said right away that you would be the very best person to talk to about these issues that we're going to deal with over the next hour. Um, if, but if, if we could, can you just give us a little bit of background? I know you're a uh, uh, professor of church history and biblical spirituality at um, um, Southern uh, – is it at, uh, at the, the Southern, Southern Baptist? Baptist Theological Seminary yes. in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Yes. And your background, um, though, you don't sound like you're from Kentucky. <laughs> no, I'm, I was born in England and uh, came to Canada in my 
uh, very early teens, um, and so I'm a Canadian, and did my doctoral work in patristics at the University of Toronto, and uh, began teaching in a, Baptist, uh, a couple of Baptist seminaries uh, in uh, Ontario, and then in 2008 became full-time at the uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. You've written several books, but one of the books that we'll probably be spending a little bit of time discussing is called, uh, and it's, I believe it might be your most recent book, but, uh, it's a crossway book from about, about a year or so ago called Rediscovering the Church Fathers, Who They Were and How They Shaped the Church. Right. Um, well, that is a perfect way to get going. And in this first little segment, which is kind of a shorter segment before we have to go to our first break, I want to talk about a couple of events that actually took place before what we would call the Church Fathers, that actually had a lot to do, I believe, with the uh, the spread of the gospel earlier, uh, before um, these names that we're familiar with, with Martyr, Justin Martyr, and Ignatius, or Polycarp, or whoever we're talking about. Um, and the first of those is, I believe, that I, I'm going to be terrible, just so you know, for the next hour, you're going to hear everything mispronounced. Uh, the dysphoria, or the dispersion, how did that impact the early Church? Okay, the uh, what we call the diaspora. Diaspora. Yeah. Um, uh, well, with the uh, the Babylonian conquest uh, back, you know, in the uh, 500s uh, BC, um, significant numbers of Jews were wrenched out of the land. Uh, obviously, a significant portion of them ended up going to to Babylon, but other Jews went down into Egypt. And over the next successive centuries, as uh, the Persian Empire is replaced, uh, or rather the Babylonian Empire is replaced by the Persian, and then uh, by the Greek uh, Empire under Alexander the Great, uh, you find significant centers of Judaism uh, springing up uh, throughout the Mediterranean world, as well as, as, well as further afield. Uh, the example, biblically being, would be uh, the story of Esther, which takes place in the heart of the Persian Empire, um, and you've got obviously Jews uh, living in uh, in the capital of the what was then the Persian Empire. But by the time you get to the first century BC, uh, AD, around the time of the birth of our Lord, um, you've got significant centers of Judaism, particularly in Asia Minor, uh, which is now modern Turkey, in Greece, uh, and especially in North Africa, uh, in places like Alexandria. Now there are two. And, there's I guess there's two questions that I have about that. Um, and, and, and how I think it impacted the church, or at least I want to get a better understanding, is one, would, would those people be the ones that we hear um, listening to Peter's sermon in Acts 2? Yes, yeah, a lot of those people, they, they would have come back, to they, they, they would make the trip back to Jerusalem on an annual basis uh, for the, uh, the Day of Atonement. And um, so they would be, yeah, they would be the, the, uh, the prime individuals who'd be listening to Peter's sermon. Uh, and they're listed there. You've got, you know, Jews from all over the Roman world and further than the Roman world. So if so they were they, never conquered and dispersed, they they wouldn't have had that large, massive area of ground to cover that they then come back, hear the gospel, and then take it back with them to all correct. these various areas. Correct. You can obviously see God's hand providentially uh, because um, – these uh, that the first place normally that Paul headed when he hit a an urban center, like um, uh, Philippi, for example. Uh, well, actually, Philippi is probably not the best example. Uh, Corinth would be uh, Thessalonica, uh, would be a syn- would be a synagogue. And isn't that almost like use... a little mini temple? Uh, well, I mean, in no. a sense, a place where they would go and congregate. Yes, and it would be a place where there would be prayer and worship, yeah. um, and uh, 
the preaching of the scriptures, reading of the scriptures, there would be no sacrifice. Yeah, but in a, but in a sense, it was kind of that meeting place, and it allowed that Correct. conversation to take place, uh, dealing with issues of like forgiveness of sin, who God is, all those questions being raised. But then that leads to the second event that seemed to have such an impact, and we've got about two minutes before the break, and, and quickly, just if you can, just deal with what, what was the impact of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D.? Well, that's, that's enormous, uh, because significant numbers of Christians uh, flee uh, from Palestine and Jerusalem in the wake of the Jewish War, which started in 66, ends in 73 with the fall of Masada, and the middle of it is the fall of the temple. So that simply increases even further the diaspora and probably pushes out a significant number of the, um, the uh, Christian leaders in Jerusalem, uh, people like uh, the Apostle John, uh, the Apostle Peter, and so on, who uh, earlier on we find based in Jerusalem, they're now based elsewhere. Yeah, in fact, we find that really when it comes to the church leadership, there was only a handful left that um, were killed during the siege or before the siege, and, mm-hmm. and even some before that. I know, I think it was James that they say was tossed yeah. from the, the temple, the, the peak of the temple. So they, the dispersion there led to the gospel being spread um, and, and church leaders um, almost taking on different areas of the Roman Empire to live and to spread that gospel. Correct. That, to be honest, those two things I think are really fascinating. Now, we're going to go to a break real quick, and when we come back, we want to talk about a handful of those first century and second century heresies that led to all these names we're going to be talking about. We're going to talk about Polycarp and Ignatius and Martyr and Irenaeus and Tertullian and all these people, yet that we know them mainly because they fought against the heresies that were creeping up in the church. And that's going to be our discussion when we get back from this little break with my guest, Dr. Michael Haken of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and a quick look at the church and its history, right here on Always Ready. You are listening to Always Ready, and we're in the midst of a discussion with Dr. Michael Haken of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary on church history, and ultimately we'll deal with its impact on what will be later known as the Reformation. But in order to really get an understanding of this first century, um, don't we also have to kind of deal with the fact that there were these heresies that were immediately popping up? I mean, John and Peter deal with them in their own writings, whether it was the Judaizers or this little inkling of what we now know as Gnosticism already kind of peeking through in the first century. Yes, before you, you know, before the ink is dry, as it were, on the, on the New Testament scriptures, you, you find the Church having to wrestle with false teaching. And um, Paul, for example, predicts this in uh, the book of Acts, Acts 20, uh, where he warns the Ephesian elders that uh, there would be those who come, would come into their midst with false teaching, and even from from their, from among themselves, there might there would arise uh, men who would uh, go astray. Well, even in and his letter get, in his letter to First Timothy, he warns mm-hmm. of it, and he says, and in latter times, and latter wasn't too much later. <laughs> it no, seems like no, it, it, yeah. I mean, to take the latter times as as talking about the the very end of history would be to misunderstand what Paul's saying there. Yes, uh, Paul is affirming that uh, it had been predicted that in the latter times, which really, from a biblical standpoint, begin with Pentecost. We're in the last days, mm-hmm. uh, that there would be uh, false teaching. Yeah, it, it's times after this, you know, right. is, is the best way I've heard it described. So, so immediately, one of the first that we hear about are the Judaizers. Yes, you would see, you would see those particularly in the book of Galatians. Um, there may well be uh, some echoes of that also in the book of uh, Romans. And these would be uh, Jewish believers 
um, who um, are professing Jewish believers who were uh, really devoted to the marks of Judaism uh, to the point that they found it very difficult to believe that God could accept Gentiles without passing through, as it were, the the antechamber or the uh, the entrance of Judaism. They must first become Jews and undergo circumcision, keep various aspects of the law uh, before they before their faith in Christ, as it were, would work. And uh, the Apostle Paul would have none of that. Yeah, in fact, and this is taking place again within ten years. Uh, of the death of Christ. But over the next 100 to 150 years, I just kind of want to get some real quick definitions of what these, uh, I think I've about four or five that I have listed, because Mm -hmm. when we continue our discussion, we're going to be talking about how people fought against these incoming uh, um, heresies. One of them that uh, that seems to pop up is docetism. Yeah, docetism uh, is a a variant of Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism denies, uh, Gnosticism basically affirms that uh, spirituality, by which they would mean that which is immaterial, uh, is good, and materiality, the body, the material realm, is evil. And docetism was a way of explaining how, therefore, you could affirm uh, Christ as Savior, um, and yet uh, deal with the, the, uh, the, the reality of the Incarnation. And so the argument was that Christ appeared to be human, and uh, the Greek word for appear is dokeo, from which we get docetism. So docetism basically affirmed that the actual humanity of Christ was not real. So, so in a sense, some of these, like, and we just dealt with two of them, um, Gnosticism and, and docetism, they still kind of linger in the Church today, it seems like. Yeah, I, I, yeah Gnosticism has made a comeback, and uh, there, it's a very complex uh, and very interesting story as to how it's come back. But ever since probably the 1950s, uh, there was a discovered in the, in the late 40s uh, uh, a number of Gnostic writings uh, in, uh, in Egypt. And when these were made available fairly widely in the popular press in the 60s and 70s, they helped stimulate as well as tied into the kind of thing we call New Age spirituality. So we have and, that. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, go ahead. Finish up that thought. And so... Uh, it's fascinating to see uh, that the early church battled Gnosticism, and uh, it's reappeared with a vengeance in certain New Age kind of circles. The, the last of the first two of the first few centuries I want to deal with is uh, Montanism and Arianism. Yeah, Montanism occurs at the end of the, the second century, and um, questions as, as to whether or not it's, it's appropriate to call it a heresy, obviously, uh, arise with regard to this. Because Montanism's difference with the Church has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. And Montanism affirmed that the Holy Spirit was still present uh, in the way that he had been in the Apostles uh, and in the Apostolic Generation, uh, still giving his gifts, uh, particularly the gift of prophecy. And they also claimed that there were certain new words that the Spirit was giving. Most of those words, the ones that we have that are quoted by their opponents, their orthodox opponents, have to do with ethical issues. Um, Montanism was very keen on affirming that after the death of your spouse, you shouldn't remarry, uh, very keen on affirming that um, unmarried women needed to wear veils, uh, very keen on affirming that uh, martyrdom was a desirable death, uh, and these sort of things, which 
we'd be probably loath to describe them as heresy, uh, their error, but they're not necessarily error of the, of, of the, of, that would lo- cause somebody to lose their salvation. And then Arianism appears in the, uh, the late, uh, the early part of the 4th century. Yes. Uh, around 318. Um, and is an attempt to answer the question, how, how can God be three in one? But does so by denying uh, the full deity of the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly the Lord Jesus. And Jesus in the Arian schema uh, becomes a creature, uh, a perfect, uh, 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 impeccable uh, creature, but nonetheless a creature. So, so is it fair to say that not all, but generally speaking, quite a few of these heresies over the first three or four centuries uh, deal directly with the uh, issues of the deity of Christ and who Christ was, what he did yeah. uh, while here? Yeah. Okay, yeah. That, that and a combination of persecution made these first three or four centuries incredibly difficult for this, uh, for this early church. So we want, now that we have kind of this background— I want to take a look at a handful of these uh, uh, church fathers, especially those just right after uh, the, the death of John. Um, the first would be um, a disciple of John's in, in Polycarp. Yes, Polycarp, uh, we, we have clear documentation that Polycarp was mentored by John. Um, he says so himself, in, um, or he's quoted that way by Irenaeus, whom he mentored. And um, Polycarp was probably born around the year 6970. Uh, in his martyrdom account, he talks about himself being 86 years old, and we know that he died as a martyr in 155 or 156. Um, and so here you have an overlap of generation of, with the apostolic generation. He would have lived at least 30 years. Usually John's death is put somewhere in the 90s. And so he would have lived at least 30 years in that apostolic period, and then be begun his ministry. Um, then we have somebody like Ignatius of yes. Antioch. Yeah, Ignatius was um, actually the next name I had had a question yep. about. Yeah, he kind of uh, is, is almost like a meteor in one sense. He comes very much into view for about six weeks and then disappears. Uh, we assume, <laughs> again, on some external evidence that he was martyred in Rome. He was arrested in Antioch around the year 106-107, uh, and on his uh, six-week trek or so to Rome, uh, he had the occasion to write a number of letters, seven letters, and uh, to churches, some of which are very familiar to us, uh, Ephesians, or the Church of Ephesus, rather, Philadelphia. Uh, other churches are not as um, familiar to us, Magnesia on the Meander, uh, all of them in what is now modern Turkey. And he also wrote to Polycarp and met Polycarp. Polycarp came to visit him. Uh, they stopped for a while in Smyrna and uh, on their way to Rome. And he was able to write some letters from there and also visit with a number of leaders from these churches. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting, you brought up both with Polycarp and Ignatius that they were martyred. And then yes. at that same time, you have this gentleman by the name of Justin Martyr right, right. after that. Yeah, Justin Martyr uh, was a Samaritan, uh, converted uh, probably in relation to the fall of Jerusalem and the, uh, the uh, sorry, the, the, the second Jewish war, which took place in the 130s, and uh, ended up uh, as a teacher in Rome, uh, where he rented um, a hall, uh, a second floor uh, level, uh, where he gave uh, lectures in biblical Christianity. 
And um, he's very important, and I've only increasingly realized his importance. It's amazing how you can read somebody for the best part of 30 years and not see his significance. Hmm. Um, he's significant because he really develops the concept uh, in a book form of what we call uh, the apology or an apologetic. And uh, you have obviously some of this going on already in the New Testament. You have in First uh, Peter, Peter urging us to always be ready to give a defense of the faith. But it's, it's just a martyr who really develops the idea of, in a compact book form, uh, for outsiders to the faith, for pagans, defending uh, Christianity. And he's defending it. Um, one of the things he was defending is what we talked about earlier, which was Gnosticism. Yeah, he, he, he has uh, a number of things to say about uh, Gnosticism. Um, his, uh, his first defense is, uh, he, has two, uh, he has three apologies, uh, one called the first apology, one the second apology, nothing original there, <laughs> and then the, a thing called the Dialogue with Trifo, which is uh, a Jewish, um, maybe a rabbi, that he meets on a beach, probably in what is now modern Lebanon. And they initiate a discussion um, where they basically talk about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's a fascinating study of uh, Messianic texts in the Old Testament. Well, we have spent two breaks now, and we're only about 160 years into the Church, maybe 150 years. When we come back from this break, we're going to go ahead and real quick, and we're going to pound through some of these names that I know people have kind of heard in the background. But we also want to ask the question, do we also need to maybe take the good and the bad when we deal with some of these uh, popular names of church fathers in church history. Uh, this is Dave Lohman. I'm talking to my guest, Dr. Michael Haken of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're taking a look at the early church and what it means to us today, right here on Always Ready. Welcome back to Always Ready. This is Dave Lohman. My friends call me D-Lo, and we are getting right back to it with Dr. Michael Haken of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which, by the way, I can really highly recommend his book. It is a Crossway publication called Rediscovering the Church Fathers, Who They Were and How They Shaped the Church, which is a lot of what we're talking about today, and we've kind of dealt with the first 100 to 150 years of the church But then it seems like there's a bit of a shift um, here, at least from what I can tell looking at church history timelines, um, to to after after martyr, we start dealing with some theologians starting to pop up, whether that's uh, Irenaeus or Tertullian, people like that that seem to really be dealing with a theological impact and an apologetic impact. Yes, uh, probably probably the key theologian of the late second century is Irenaeus. Um, now, he had been mentored by Polycarp. He grew up at Smyrna. At some point, makes his way to Rome, and from Rome, uh, may well have been sent out to plant a congregation or be involved in leadership of a congregation in southern France at a place called Lyon. And um, that's where he ends up becoming a bishop around the year 180. After a very horrific persecution, he was away on a trip to Rome. He returns to find uh, all of the leadership of the church dead, martyred, as well as a neighboring church at a place called Vienne. And uh, he has to step in and become the, the key pastoral leadership uh, figure in that, in that context. He writes a massive book called Against Heresies, which is um, a major work of uh, defending the faith, uh, the reality of the Incarnation and the Resurrection and the Crucifixion of Christ, uh, the reality of a, the fact that the God who has revealed himself in our Lord Jesus is the same God who reveals himself in the Old Testament, which the Gnostics denied. 
And so we know a lot about Gnosticism uh, from Irenaeus because he spends the first book, and it's almost interminable, uh, going through all the Gnostic heresies that he knows of. He's read their writings firsthand, and he cites portions of them. And it's difficult going for somebody who's, who's wanting to look for more, a more positive spin on the, uh, Christian theology. Now, it is interesting to note, I was uh, talking, um, oh, just a couple months ago to uh, Dr. Daniel Wallace of Dallas Theological yeah. Seminary, yeah. and he was making the comment that some of these earliest writers, whether it be Polycarp or, or Martyr or Irenaeus or Tertullian, they were not brief in their use of Scripture, that you could almost piece together the entire New Testament just from their own writings, that they, they, they had what they believed was the Word of God shaping itself as early—this is not a 4th or 5th or 6th century, but in the 1st and 2nd and 3rd century, we see the true canon of Scripture coming together. Yes, that, that, would, that would be so. Um, yeah, the, the, you, you could, if we had none of the, uh, the manuscripts of the New Testament, we could reconstruct virtually most of it because of the copious quotation of the Scriptures uh, from the Fathers. Doesn't that also tell us what they didn't consider Scripture? Um, uh, only yeah, well, only because yeah, you don't we, see we, them quoting from some of what we now call the Gnostic Gospels. Oh, absolutely not. No, they're not. They're not quoting those at all. In fact, they, they you know they're they're rejecting those. We have we have clear indication of their rejection of the so-called Gnostic Gospels. So where so where does Tertullian fit in? Because I know that he is just right after that time. Yeah, Tertullian's life would have overlapped with Irenaeus. Um, probably didn't meet each other or know each other. Tertullian's a North African. Um, he mentions how he had been a shocking sinner before his conversion, so was converted somewhere in his adult years, unlike Irenaeus, who probably grew up in a Christian home. Um, and Tertullian is a, he's a fascinating figure. He's the first theologian who writes in Latin, uh, brilliant in terms of his uh, usage of words and phrases. Uh, it's from Tertullian, for instance, we get the phrase, the blood of the martyrs is seed, and usually that's the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, from Tullian, we get the phrase, what has Athens got to do with Jerusalem? Um, and it's also Tertullian who invents the word Trinitas, huh. uh, that, which is the Latin word behind our word Trinity. And again, that's yeah. not in the 5th or 6th or 7th century, but nope. he, he nope. takes something that was already developed and simply gives it a name. Yep. Yep. Now, what's interesting, you brought something up, and this is all—I bet if I talked to um, a thousand Christians in a hundred different churches and asked them, where were most of the church fathers, they would say either Jerusalem or Rome, and none of them would say Egypt. And yet you can't escape Egypt. No, uh, you've got um, a—well, a, because you see, part of the reason there is because you've got a significant number of Jews in Alexandria. And so the gospel, the first place the gospel goes in the Roman world is to the synagogues. And so the gospel would have been taken there. We, we already have some indication of that in the book of Acts or with Apollos, that the gospel has come to Egypt. We're not told the details of it. Uh, church history, some of the traditions would be that the, um, the gospel writer Mark took the, the scriptures and took the gospel to, to Egypt. Don't we also have an, a library there that is was considered the tantamount yes. library of all time? Yeah, it's the largest. It's the largest library in the ancient world. It's probably between half a million and a million volumes. Wow! And that uh, is just the amazing. loss of it uh, was catastrophic. It was destroyed during the uh, Muslim conquest. 
Yeah, and that and that's something. Hopefully, by the time we get to the end of the show, if not, I'll have to deal with it on tomorrow's program with my other guests. But um, when we when we leave the time of Tertullian, it's about this time that at least some of the original formulation of some of the earliest creeds, and in fact, the Apostles' Creed, is said to have been formulated around that exact same time. Yeah, one of the things that uh, one of the ways in which the Church sought to respond to heresy, and particularly Gnosticism, was the formulation of creedal statements, which would normally be, renou- would be, would be agreed to by, the, the, uh, by a person as they entered the Church uh, and uh, were baptized as believers. And uh, so the, the creeds then arose in part through uh, a way of responding to heresy. And uh, in some of the creeds, particularly the, the Nicene Creed, you can see this very clearly, the the opening statement, we believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in His uh, Son, our Lord Jesus. There's, there's one God being uh, declared, where Gnostics you know, argued that there were two gods, the God of the Old Testament who made the world, and then the true God, who is the Father of Jesus, and so on. And so we have at that exact same time Irenaeus defending against what was uh, what Marcionism, the, the idea of uh, Marcion was trying to add a whole bunch of different books to what was already considered a, a canon. Well, actually, Marcion is yeah. Marcion is cutting the canon down. Oh, okay. He's, yeah, he's chopping off the Old Testament. He doesn't want that. He chops off all the New Testament gospels except for Luke, and he chops out Luke up until around chapter three when Jesus begins his ministry, because he doesn't want to deal with the issue of the incarnation. And then he uh, would recognize Paul's letters, and that's it. So he's got a gospel, a truncated gospel of Luke, and then Paul's letters. But yeah, Marcion's a variant of, of Gnosticism too. And uh, but you're right. Yeah, book four of um, Irenaeus's Against Heresies is particularly directed against Marcion. And then right after that, we have a character that I find utterly fascinating because if you talk to Protestants and to Catholics, um, half of what Origen did, they'd say, "Oh, he's our guy," and the other half of what Origen did, they would say, "Oh, he's their guy." Um, he is a pretty unique character who brought. When I said before with the break, the bringing the bad with the good, he literally did. Yeah, origin is um, origin. First of all, I think just from a, a human standpoint, he was brilliant, uh, both in his abilities uh, as a theologian and in language, etc. Um, he was competent in Hebrew. Most of the early church fathers who came out of a Gentile background had really no knowledge of Hebrew, and so they, when they used the, the Old Testament, they used it in a Greek version uh, called the Septuagint, and um, Origen is very capable in terms of his uh, abilities of the Hebrew Old Testament, as well as obviously the Greek scriptures. He's Greek. He's from Alexandria. Um, he was uh, recognized as a teacher in the uh, really kind of Christian academy uh, that trained leaders in Alexandria when he was 18 years old, which is quite remarkable. Yeah, it's because amazing. Normally in the ancient world, you had to be around 30 before you were recognized as uh, for a leadership position. And um, but Origen also has uh, some problems in terms of his the way he interprets scripture. Um, while he never disparaged the historical interpretation of a text, he would often argue for what we would describe as an allegorical interpretation. And while his allegorical interpretations normally never took him beyond the boundaries of the faith, what he was doing was he was opening up scripture to be really as as Calvin would describe it many years later. Uh, kind of a wax nose, and the, 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 the reader brought to the text 
um, a variety of concerns which he could easily read into the text. And um, and so, for instance, um, uh, Origen reading, you know, certain portions of the law um, would bring things to the text that where he was interested in, which really had nothing to do with the text. Hmm. Yeah, it's just very interesting to see, you know, there's talks of him accepting uh, universalism, different things like that, and, and that's why I was kind of getting at that. Yeah, but he also helped pave the way for the doctrine of the Trinity to be really spelled out well. He did. Um, his affirmation of universalism is not, is not correct. Oh, okay. Uh, I know, no, Rob Bell argued that in his, uh, that book that kind of caused a bit of a stir a few years ago, uh, Love Wins. Yeah. Uh, but that was a, a very strong misinterpretation of uh, of origin. Origin never spells that out. Now that is, and that is great to know. We're going to go to a break real quick. We have one segment left, and we want to. I want to brush with two uh, major characters uh, over the next couple of centuries. So be thinking about that through the break. I want to talk a bit about Athanasius, and then against the most uh, controversial character of them all, and not controversial because of what he said, but whether or not it's Augustine or Augustine. That and more with my guest, uh, Dr. Michael Haken from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, right here on Always Ready. Welcome back to Always Ready. This is Dave Lohman. My guest is Dr. Michael Haken. And before the break, I said we wanted to talk at least about a couple more characters, uh, men, uh, great men that impacted both the Reformation and eventually the church today. Um, and I know that I have to skip over something I was hoping to get to, which is the Manichaeanism. And and the dualist heresies, but I've noticed that when it comes to people like Athanasius and such, much of what they defended against, they were defending the deity of Christ. And Athanasius and the creed named after Athanasius uh, deals exactly with that. Yeah, Athanasius is a yeah very 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 important figure. Um, he uh, again is uh, a Greek from uh, Egypt, uh, from Alexandria. Um, it would appear he grew up in a Christian home. Um, the, there's really no evidence that he grew up in a pagan environment. Um, was ordained as a bishop by the year 328. There was some stir about that because he was uh, uh, regarded as too young for that. He was probably around 28, 29 years old. Um, he's ordained at a very difficult time because it's in the middle of the Arian controversy. And Arius was based in Alexandria. And um, a number of Arius' uh, supporters had the, air, had the ear of the emperor. And uh, this is the period in which uh, Constantine has declared himself a Christian, and you, start, you now have the challenge of Roman emperors uh, meddling in church affairs. And because uh, they, they claim basically to be Christians from this point on, except for one whose name is Julian the Apostate. And Athanasius is at the brunt of many of their attacks because a number of these um, emperors, uh, for instance, most particularly a man named Constantius II, who is Constantine's son, is an out-and-out Arian. And so he is, uh, uh, Athanasius is um, uh, expelled from Alexandria on five distinct occasions, the longest being um, a period of time that he has to spend on the run in the Egyptian desert. And at the heart of, of this debate, uh, of the heart of these expulsions, is his, de- is his determination to defend the deity of Christ. And that seems and, to be a, uh, a constant issue within the Church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these early centuries are very important for hammering out uh, the primary, really a primary salvation issue, is who is the Lord Jesus Christ? 
And quite often, they would, uh, in fact, someone kind of commented that these two centuries were the uh, century of councils. Yes, I mean, the 4th and 5th century, you see a number of councils. You count the Council of Nicaea in 325, which drew up the Nicene Creed that affirmed that Christ was of one being with the Father. That should have ended the debate. But Arius was a wily creature and uh, was able to extend the debate to various figures who had, as I said, the ear of the emperor. And so the, the debate uh, 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 basically uh, continued down to 381, uh, at the Council of Constantinople, where the deity of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit were, were reaffirmed. And that essentially ended the debate in the Eastern Roman Empire, but it continued in the West. And uh, when Augustine is uh, alive as uh, bishop, uh, the pastoral leader of the church in Hippo Regius, which is now in modern Tunisia, um, uh, Arianism was still a live issue for him, even 20, 30 years after the end of the the so-called heresy at the uh, Council of Constantinople. And there was probably no, at least no more famous or more important uh, theologian of those first thousand years of the Church um, out, um, outside of, uh, of Augustine, or Augustine. Yeah, yeah. There are, as, you, as you mentioned earlier, there is a debate about how to pronounce his <laughs> name. Um, but yeah, Augustine, I, when, I teach, when I teach the early Church, I emphasize the early Church has given us three great, great gifts. Number one, the doctrine of the Trinity. Not that they invented it, it's there all through the pages of Holy Scripture, but they, they crystallized it, they hammered out the doctrine. Secondly, the canon of the New Testament. The canon of the New Testament, again, they didn't create it, but they recognized the books that God had inspired in those first centuries, in the first century, rather. And then thirdly, Augustine. And uh, where, wherever there has been a revival of, um, um, of the Church, uh, in the West at least, Augustinianism has been central to it. The emphasis that God, God is sovereign over his creation and that our salvation is rooted in sovereign grace. And that's, that's Augustine all the way. Yeah, I, I, it's just uh, it's unbelievable that, that this time in history, that one man um, literally had such an impact. And considering his background, he has a really interesting biography, not just what he did theologically. Yeah, he was born into a mixed home. His mother, Monica, who almost definitely was a Berber, uh, native North African, uh, was a believer. And uh, he would later say that it was his mother's prayers that won him, for, won him to, cry, to Christ. And then secondly, uh, his father, Patricius, or Patricius, was an unbeliever. He becomes a Christian on his deathbed. Uh, and we're thankful we don't have to determine how, whether or not that was real or not. God knows that. But um, um, uh, his father gave his mother a very difficult time trying to stymie her efforts to raise her son as, as in, the, in the Christian faith. Uh, when he hits his teen years, he goes off to university. He's about 17 years old. His uh, mother warns him never to commit adultery or fornication, but he plunges right into both of them. Hmm. And for about a year, he lives the life, uh, a riotous life, uh, not, too typical, not too atypical of some of our uh, you know, secular campuses today. And then... Um, and when he's about 19, he suddenly reads a book, or he, he reads a book by a Roman, uh, pagan Roman author named uh, Cicero. And it's, the, it's a book that is, a, is an exhortation to the pursuit of truth. It changes his life. He begins now to pursue truth. And for a period of time, he's wrapped up in a cult, which you mentioned earlier, Manichaeanism, which is a kind of a variant of Gnosticism, uh, dualistic cults. Uh, God breaks him free from that and eventually brings him to Milan, 
where he's now, by his early, late 20s, 29, 30, he's now a teacher of rhetoric and is as a, a position as an official teacher at the University of Milan, um, teaching uh, aspiring uh, leaders in the, um, in the upper echelons of the Roman Empire. And it's there that he, he finally hears somebody whom he can respect as a Christian, a man named Ambrose of Milan, mm. goes to hear him preach, and begins, God begins to draw him through the preaching of the Word uh, to himself. And there's a famous, very famous uh, conversion scene that takes place in um, uh, three, uh, uh, 380, um, 386, sorry, 386 in, uh, in, uh, in Milan, in a garden. And he's converted. Yeah, and his great work that, that still is read very widely today, um, one is City of God. Yes, I mean, uh, well, you've, got, you've probably got three great works by Augustine. Uh, the City of God would be the one. His Confessions, we know an enormous amount about his life, uh, even to the point of knowing the exact day he was born on, November the 13th, uh, 354. We, we know virtually, we never normally know the birth dates of anybody in the ancient world. Um, and that because of his Confessions. And then uh, during his, um, the, probably the high point of his ministry, the City of Rome is sacked. Uh, by this time, he's back in North Africa. He's the pastor of a church in a place called Hippo Regius, a small town which is now probably in, in, in Tunisia. And um, he has to respond to this. It takes him 13 years of writing this book. Um, he is a pastor, and that's what he's primarily doing, preaching and leading God's people. Uh, but in his uh, quote-unquote spare time, uh, he's able to write this tremendous theology of history, and a defense of, of God, uh, and sovereignty over history, and the fact that there are two cities, one, the city of man, which will perish and end up in hell, really. Sometimes he calls it the city of the devil. And the other, city of God, which enrolls in its ranks, uh, first of all, angels, and then all of God's people, his Old Testament people, and then his New Testament people. And that will end up in the beatific vision, the vision yeah. of God. And, and with, with about two minutes left in the whole program, um, probably the most famous debate that he had in terms of, of, of who he was dealing with would be uh, Pelagius and the Pelagian controversy. Um, they were on polar opposites when it comes to the, the work of God and human nature and human will. Yeah, up until Augustine, most of the heresies that normally involved God in terms of um, who, who was God, who was Jesus. Um, the, the challenge of the Pelagian debate was it had to do now with the issue of salvation in terms of grace. How are we saved? <clears throat> and um, Augustine lays out the foundations that we are saved by grace alone. Yeah, and there's nobody that influenced Luther and Calvin as much as Augustine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, the, the, the Reformation, in one sense, is a revival of Augustinianism. Um, the other side of Augustine, though, also, Augustine was a very keen churchman, so he emphasized that outside of the church there is no salvation. And so that phrase is picked up uh, in the, at the time of the Reformation, but probably wrongly understood, because by the time of the Reformation, the Roman Church is saying it's outside of this church, namely the Roman Church, and Augustine would not have agreed with that. No, he would have said outside of the Church of Christ. 
Exactly. As, as of the body. Well, I thank you so much for joining me. We only got to about half of my page of questions because time just <laughs> flew by so much. I really hope that in the future I can I can convince you to come back and join me again. I would love we'll, to. we'll deal with more of these questions and more of these thoughts. Again, my guest was uh, Dr. Michael Haken of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Please pick up his book, Rediscovering the Church Fathers, Who They Were and How They Shaped the Church. Over the next several days, we're going to continue our discussion on church history. Tomorrow's program, we will deal directly with the, 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 the next hundred or thousand years until we get up to the time of the Reformation. And then finally, we'll deal with the lives of Luther and the lives of John Calvin. And then next week, we're going to deal even more with the impact of the Reformation and the early church on your church today. What you believe and why you believe it can be traced back not just 500 years, not even 1,000 years, but 2,000 years in this interesting subject as we continue right here on Always Ready. <laughs> 